0: So by now you've heard me talk about the benefits of microdosing. And if not, just know that all sorts of people, myself included, are microdosing to boost their mood, fall asleep more easily, and even help with pain and workout recovery. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. And Microdose Gummies deliver the perfect entry-level dose of THC to help you feel just the right amount of good without getting high from just one microdose. It's like the sweet spot between CBD and THC that gives you the benefits of both. Decreased anxiety, a mood lift, and a good night's rest. Microdose gummies are legal everywhere in the United States and are made with high-quality organic ingredients infused with Oregon-grown berries. You can really taste the difference in quality. Every flavor I've tried is great. I especially love them to help me wind down at the end of a long, stressful day. Now, Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about Microdosing THC, go to Microdose.com and use code Us to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show notes. But again, that's Microdose.com and code Us. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to that spider with a human face. evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Oh, hey there. How is your summer going? It's that time of year when things seem to slow down and speed up all at the same time. Vacations, ball games, summer holiday plans. Juxtaposed with those long, lazy days outside. And naps in the hammock. And maybe a night or two. Next to the bonfire. While the latter scenario is where we begin tonight's show. By the old fire pit. Brett from Nebraska. Please elaborate. Hi Derek. My name's Brett
1: from Madison, Nebraska. We love your show. My wife and I listen to it all the time. I wanna get your feedback on a little story that happened to us not so long ago. In October of 2018, my wife's youngest son, his wife and child, one-year-old boy were out here. and We had a fire pit burning. It was a nice Indian summer and we had the fire pit burning in celebration of them being able to move on to Indiana to new jobs and new futures. After they'd left, we didn't think anything about it. November came and it was a rainy month and that's when they left to head back to Indiana. Well, in May of 2019, it was the first nice day in May where you really wanted to be outside when spring was coming out here in the northeastern part of Nebraska. And my wife and I, Margie, like to do, uh, you know, we, we cook for our friends, we do cheeseburgers and stuff like that. A friend of ours showed up about 1030 and he was waiting around while we got things ready. It takes about 20 minutes to do it. And we had another boarder move in, in December of 2018 named Ann. And she was out in her bathroom walking her dog, cause it was fairly early in the morning. We didn't expect anybody to come. Until after 11. Anyway, she's walking the dog. Margie's out doing the burger on the grill. And I'm in the house doing the fries, the potatoes that go with it. To try and get things timed right, I'd poke my head out the door, see where she was at, make sure kind of everything worked out on time. And I saw a lot of smoke coming from the fire pit. Plus, I could smell the wood burning a little bit. So I came out the door and I said, Margie, did you start a fire in the fire pit? She said, no, why? And she had to kind of look around the uh, maple tree that was right in front of her and she could see the smoke coming from it. So I ran to Ann who was still outside walking her dog and I asked her if she had thrown something in the fire pit to start the fire and she said no. So I came back in the house and our friend that was sitting here waiting for his burger, I asked him, You know, did you throw anything in the fire pit? Of course, he said no. So we're all kind of fumbled about what's going on here. So we took a short video. I'm hoping you got it. The fire pit hadn't been used since October. The log was sitting on about two bricks high on a flat surface. You know, the log was kind of teetering on it and the burn mark was about the size of a silver dollar. When I first looked out, it was smoking really hard, almost like there was a giant magnifying glass between the sun and the earth. The log was facing due east, and the sun, we have a tree line about 30 yards away from the fire pit, was well above that. But if you get the video and you see where the fire started on the log, you'll see that I don't think there's any way anybody could have started that fire intentionally. It's had us baffled for all these years since, and we'd like to know kind of what you think about it. Thank you. We love your show. Please let us know. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Brad. That is certainly a weird one. Now anyone taking a surface-level look at this case will probably think that now, well, typically, items don't just combust on their own. That person just might be wrong. It seems the concept of spontaneous combustion is not only possible, but it could be likely in some certain situations, as
2: explained in this National Fire Protection Association education video. Back in July 2018, in my role writing for NFPA Journal, I came across an interesting story – Nacho chip dust that had spontaneously combusted in Austin, Texas. Little did I know that one year later, I'd come across a similar story about sushi tempura flakes bursting into flames at multiple restaurants across the country. All of these incidents shared the same culprit combustible oils. When I spoke to experts at NFPA about the fiery food items, they weren't surprised. For many years, NFPA has warned the public about the dangers of leaving oil-soaked rags balled up to dry. When rags are coated with oil-based paints, stains, varnishes, or other chemicals commonly used in the household, those oils can self-heat as they dry. They can get so hot, in fact, that a fire can start with no apparent ignition source, like an open flame or a spark. The same phenomenon, it turns out, had happened with the oils coating the nacho chip dust and the tempura flakes. Essentially, what happens is that when these oils dry or cure, they pull oxygen molecules out of the air. This chemical reaction generates heat. So much heat that you can fairly easily achieve the ignition temperature of whatever material the oil happens to be coating, be it a rag or some crispy corn tortillas. Now, I remember seeing stacks of
0: wet hay smoking out in the field late in the summer when I was a kid. For the longest time, I thought it was simply steam that was escaping the pile, only later to learn that it was in fact smoke, as the hay began to burn from the inside via this process. Now it's time to raise the question many of you were already thinking. Can this happen to living organisms as well? Can people be victims? Well, allow me to introduce a phenomena known as spontaneous human combustion via the man that literally wrote the book on the subject researcher and author of the book ablaze larry arnold
3: all right let's start at the very beginning what is
0: spontaneous human combustion it's the process the phenomenon whereby a body will blister
4: smoke or otherwise burn in the absence of a nearby identifiable radiant heat
0: source so if you can rule out an open flame a radiant heat source is a radiator or stove. If you can rule out high amperage, if you can rule out radioactive material or caustic chemicals, then you have to consider if a person is burning, that spontaneous human combustion is the end result or the cause of, of that process that's ongoing before you or within you. Now, that clip, courtesy of Jeff Belanger's 30 odd minutes. Link to the full episode for free in tonight's show notes. Now, what makes this phenomena so strange is that there's no fire. There's no flame, there's no ignition source. There's typically no other damage to the surrounding area. And oftentimes, limbs, hands, or feet will often remain untouched while the rest of the body is essentially cremated at 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And since you're tuned into this broadcast, I imagine you're the curious type, the type that would like to learn more about this sort of experience. From a safe distance, of course. Well, allow me to share the tale of spontaneous human combustion victim, Mary Reeser, courtesy of the Tampa Bay Times. Before sinking into the overstuffed easy chair in the middle of her St. Petersburg apartment, a widow named Mary Harder Reeser slipped into a nightgown and popped two sleeping pills. Hot summer air drifted through the open windows. It was around 9 p.m. on July 1st, 1951, Reeser's only son, Dr. Richard Reeser Jr., had just kissed her goodbye after a visit. She was alone for the night and decided to enjoy a cigarette before bed. Reeser, 67, would not be seen alive again. When the landlady Pansy Carpenter tried to deliver a telegram the next morning, the door to Reeser's small apartment on 1200 Cherry Street Northeast, was warm and the handle too hot to touch. Inside the charred walls, embers still crackled. Firefighters burst into a soot-and-smoke-filled apartment. Reeser was gone, and only a pile of black ashes remained. Amid the rubble, police found a coil box spring from the chair and part of Reeser's backbone. Her left foot sat in the pile, still wearing a black silk slipper. Her skull, reports say, had shrunken to the size of a cup. Firefighters found evidence of extreme heat. Bare candle wicks towered above puddles of melted wax. Smudges of smoke had stained the tops of the walls. And warped electric switches lined the room. But lower down, the walls were clean and the electric switches looked normal. And Reeser's newspaper sat untouched. The sheets on her bed were still white. So circling back here, Brett... Maybe there was some sort of combustible oil in your fire pit, and the timing of its ignition was a mere coincidence. Or perhaps, there's something more unusual afoot. No pun intended. I think we should all be happy it was only a piece of firewood that went up, and not someone's loved one. Now I'm convinced this phenomena is real, and occurring to this day. It's just that it's so rare and difficult to research, we just haven't locked it down yet. So thanks again, Brad, for the call and the opportunity to share a gnarly phenomena. Now, if you have a tale to tell, a true tale, simply give our 24-7, 365 hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-N-I-G-H-T. Or just record your story on your phone, then email it to monstersamonguspodcast at com. Now this next entry is one of the ghostly variety. Please welcome Autumn from Mississippi to the program.
5: Hi, my name is Autumn from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and I'm here to tell you a modern Mississippi ghost story that happened to me about 20 years ago. Uh, I was in the fourth or fifth grade. And this happened when my mother, my younger sister, and my stepfather moved to Diamond Head, Mississippi, which was a retirement community but became a city later on. We moved into a shotgun home, meaning when you walked in, there was this big area, dining room, living room space. To the right on the wall, there was a window with bar stools looking into a kitchen. And when you step down the hallway, it was a shotgun hallway, one hallway with all the rooms connected to it with doors. And the kitchen just had an opening so you could look to the right and just walk into the kitchen. Now we started feeling uneasy, feeling like you were watched all the time. I even would just have this feeling of being really scared and needing to protect my younger sister when we went to bed at night very random nothing happened I just had this feeling like I need to go climb in bed with my little sister and keep her safe so the first event that happened here was pretty wild Uh, my sister and I would come home and be the only ones at home after school because my parents were working and I was in the kitchen making some mac and cheese because I had earned mac and cheese privileges (laughs) And I'm sitting there cooking, and I watched a man in blue jeans, work boots, and a flannel walk past that kitchen opening down the hallway. And I thought it was my stepfather. My stepfather worked in, like, construction and painting and things like that. So work clothes, kind of rugged flannel jeans and boots was his normal working attire. So I called out his name. Scott? You know, he wasn't supposed to be home at that time, but I called it out. Nothing. I checked every room, nothing, and I thought, well, maybe this person's walking through the connections of the home, you know, at this different time. So I grabbed my sister. We left and we went up the street to a friend's house and I called my mom from there because at the time there's no cell phones, just home phones. So my mother was like, okay, my daughter saw this man in our home, oh my gosh, and came home, checked it out, nothing. After that, she told me, because we were, you know, religious at the time, and so she told me, look, if anything makes you uncomfortable, you can always just call out and say, I'm protected, you can't touch me, leave me alone, and so that stuck in my mind. The second event I had fallen asleep on the couch when we were watching a film as a family, and they just left me on the couch, you know, it's not a problem. Well, that's very scary when you wake up as a kid and you're all alone in your living room. And I woke up and I was scared, and I thought about running to my room, but the hallway seemed unsafe. And that might just be young child paranoia or something. So I thought, well, I'm just going to put blankets over my head and ride it out. I'm going to stay on the couch and maybe I'll fall asleep. Well, then I felt pressure like on my chest, my arms, I'm under the blanket, and something starts pushing me into the sofa. There's pressure, and I'm wide awake, and I started getting really freaked out, and I remembered my mother's words. You can't touch me. I'm protected. You need to stop. Leave me alone. And instantly, that pressure released. I was really scared, and I ran to my mother's room. And the third event that happened was my stepfather's personality started changing. Today, we think maybe whatever was there attached to him in some way, since he was the only male in the home, I don't know, a, a dominant force, a, a controlling force, I'm not sure. But his personality became very irritable and angry, and he just turned into this different person to the point where we actually left the home from him, and we went and stayed at a shelter and then with family. It was a really weird, really weird, bizarre time for us in this home We finally moved out of the home, and I ended up talking to my mother about it after we moved out. And she told me that a man had passed away in the home. And she's not sure under what circumstance, but she did get that information from locals and from the person that was renting the home out. And the other information from the locals was they were aware that it was haunted. So they had heard stories of people who lived there before us and my mother brushed them off. You know, it was a great house, great deal. She's like, Oh, you know, it's, you know, those are just some stories to, you know, as, as we lived in the home, we actually experienced similar things. It was very interesting. Um, I've never experienced anything quite so clear You know, sometimes people say, like, I've seen something out of the corner of my eye, or it was a shimmer, or my eyes played a trick on me. But I'll never forget that full-body, full-color man, I guess apparition, walking down the hallway Mm -hmm. enough for me to think, there's someone else here, and we need to leave. Um, It was wild, and I'm not sure why that person might still be there, or if it was an echo of the past, maybe just residual energy left there from, you know, something so sad or, you know, high charged as, you know, passing away. But to this day, I'll never forget it. That's a modern Mississippi ghost story for you. Thank you so much for your show. I love it. I'm a new listener, and I'll call back again with some more stories. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thanks, Autumn. You know, there's a detail here that I'm beginning to notice more and more often. The fact that the home in question was a shotgun home. A house that's only one room wide and several rooms deep. I believe the front door and the back door are also in line. Anyway, I've been processing a lot of calls from the hotline here lately, and I can't help but notice how often that detail is mentioned. Shotgun homes. Now I'll get to those calls over the next season or two. So pay attention and see if you can't spot all the times it's mentioned. And thank you, Autumn, for sharing that amazing encounter. A full bodied apparition is sort of the golden egg in ghostly activity. And you might not, but you should consider yourself lucky for having seen it. Now, our next mystery comes to us from the skies. Will, in Missouri. Welcome to the platform.
4: Hi, my name is Will. I'm from Missouri. Love your podcast. Me and my daughter listen to it all the time. And she wanted me to call in and tell my story about seeing a UFO. Uh, I work for a company that we do maintenance on cell phone towers. So we travel all over Missouri and Kansas. So I drive Kansas quite a bit. And I was taking this one stretch of highway that I'm very familiar with. It's very flat out there, and there's nothing around. So there's one section when you come over the hill, you can see what I call a windmill farm. It's where they have a lot of these windmills for power out there. And then at the very end of that section, there's a cell tower, and I always know it as a marker as I'm driving out that way. So I was driving out there, and it was raining. as a typical storm, and the rain had stopped. I could see, like, the line of clouds that was the storm front. And I noticed as I'm driving that direction that I start seeing a light in the cloud. My first thought was, you know, what is a plane doing in the storm? You know, commercial planes and everything, they try to fly above or under the storm or around it, anything but through it. So I thought that was strange, but nothing else made sense other than I'm seeing a light coming through the clouds. And I'm driving towards it, and I keep looking at it because it's just so strange. And then the light starts getting dimmer and dimmer as I'm getting closer and it's getting bigger. And then I see that it's not a light at all. It looks to be some kind of egg-shaped craft. I've seen the Tic Tac videos and everything from the F-18s that were leaked and it doesn't look like Tic Tac shapes. It looked more like an oblong egg shape, but I could tell it was like a grayish silver color and it was oblong. And the way it was moving, is like it was coming straight my direction and I was going straight in its direction. So the closer it got, the bigger it got, and the stranger it looked. And it kept going, and I could see that tower in the foreground as I'm coming towards it. I could see this craft. It moved straight over that tower and then it started coming straight down towards the cell tower, which I thought was really strange. There's no reason for it. An aircraft normally don't get that low or anywhere close to it. So I set up as much as I could. Safely, and I'm trying to get closer to this thing and it's coming straight down and it gets so close, the distance I was at, it looked like maybe it had to be within 50 foot of the tower top which is crazy close for any kind of actual aircraft, helicopter plane, anything to be that close to a tower and that low to the ground and then as I'm trying to figure out what this thing is and I'm getting closer and closer and I, that's when I, it actually dawned on me, I was like, hey I should grab my phone i start to grab my phone and i'm looking down grab my phone i look up and about the second i look back up it just sits there for a second and then i start fumbling my phone while i'm looking at it and this thing just all of a sudden shoots straight up and when i say straight up i mean straight up and it went so fast it was gone in a split second it was so fast i was like where'd it go and just gone i know enough about aircraft and helicopters and and jets, all that, to know that that was no kind of anything that I've ever seen. Helicopters, even, they can't move in like 90 degree turns or whatnot. They can do it, but they have to like swing one wave and move the other. So it just did not have the movement of anything that I've ever seen before. And I know it was nothing that anybody on this planet knows of anyway. So that's the only thing I've ever seen like that. And it really made me question things and... I've seen the Tic Tac videos and all that stuff, so I know other people have seen it, but that's the best that I've ever seen, so yeah, love the show and uh, glad we could share this. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Will. Now there's a shape we hear about from time to time. Not as popular as the triangle shape or the classic flying saucer look, but one that's reported enough to take notice. I think of the Lonnie Zamora incident, the Lock Raven UFO, and some even claim the object that crashed in Roswell was too an egg-shaped craft. Now I've linked to the history of all three of those experiences in the show notes, if you would like to explore further. I'd wondered what the numbers are on the probability of seeing a certain shape over another when it comes to UFO sightings, and in doing so I found some useful information. According to an article in the Syracuse Times, between 2001 and 2017, all 50 states and Washington, D.C., logged at least one sighting of an egg shaped UFO. But the total for the period was a measly 1,263 reported sightings, barely 1% of the 139,876 national all type sightings reported for that period. So, as Will can tell you, there's something egg-shaped zipping around up there. And like with autumn, you might not think it, but you're lucky to have seen it. And thanks again, Will, for sharing the entry. Now folks, there's no better time to prepare your spooky season wardrobe than today. Visit our merch store and pick up some shirts, a hat, sticker, patches, pins, and a whole lot more all carefully and exclusively designed by a number of talented paranormal-themed artists. Just visit our website and click the shop tab. If you pre-ordered one of our Color Blast t-shirts, those will be in in about two weeks. And at that point, they'll be restocked in the shop as well. That's MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and click the shop tab. Now then, this next entry takes us to Tennessee, where Casey is waiting with an entry.
6: Hey Derek, my name's Casey, I live in East Tennessee. Love the show by the way, you do a great job. Anyway, my story goes back to, I'd say about between 2016, and 2017. I was dating this girl and I used to go stay at her house with her and she had two small children and she lived with her mom at the time. Well, I'd notice that whenever I would go to this house I would feel this weird kind of vibe, like a negative kind of vibe. And I've, I've always been able to feel stuff like that. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I've seen weird things. I've heard weird things. So I felt this and, you know, I'd mentioned it to her a couple of times that I'd get this weird feeling when I come to her house. Well, one night we're laying on the couch and uh, watching TV. I've got to leave for work the next morning. So we decide to go to sleep. And I couldn't have been asleep. I had just started to drift off. I couldn't have been asleep more than five minutes. And for some reason, I just wake up and I'm looking at the ceiling. Well, the way the couch was positioned, if you look straight ahead, if you were laying on it, there's a hallway, there's a bedroom on the left, a bedroom on the right. And then there's this big mirror on the wall that you could look directly at. I just, for some reason, look up. There's a black mask and you can't see through it and it's just a black mass looks like kind of like the outline of a of a big man and you can't see through it and it jolted me it scared me and it startled her because i jumped and she looked at me and she's all like what and i'm just like nothing don't worry about it i lay back down and then there was another night i was staying there and her daughter had this little one of those little toy cooking machines Top things the little playhouse things, and you could turn the knobs on it and it would make a clicking sound and this happened maybe two or three times but we'd be laying there or we'd be sitting there watching tv and you'd hear those it'd be clicking like somebody was in there turning one of the little dials on it and then her daughter would wake up screaming terrified absolutely terrified we'd run in there you know i'd check around the room and stuff tell her everything's okay that you know there's nothing in here yeah that happened a couple times and then the the craziest one to me she we had started staying in her bedroom and we always slept with the door shut there was one night we're laying down we're just sitting there chit-chatting you know before we go to sleep and it sounds like somebody like tapped on the door She gets up, opens the door, thinking it's one of the kids, you know, wants something to drink or something. There's nobody there. She closes the door and lays back down. And no sooner did she get back under the covers, the door, it's like somebody booted the door wide open. You know, and there's nothing there on the other side of the door. We're just staring like, what was that? You know, we couldn't understand. And... You know, that, about that time, I, I started telling her about, you know, some of my personal ghost stories and stuff, but love the show. You do a great job, and hopefully my story makes it on the air. Keep up the good work. I love all the stories. Have a good day.
0: Thanks, Casey. You know, I wonder if any of those events influenced the ending of that relationship. Could you imagine if that was the reason you were dumped? A ghost creep them out so bad. That they flat out left the relationship. How do you explain that to your friends? She ghosted me, bro. Thank you again, Casey, for taking the time to share that experience. We may be making light of it now, but I'm sure at the time it was downright terrifying. Now don't forget, folks, if you need more monsters among us in your life, you can easily increase your dosage by signing up to be a patron on Patreon. $1 a month gets you ad-free content, $5 gets you tons and tons of bonus material, somewhere around 95 hours worth at this point. Just visit patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast, or click the Patreon tab over at our website. Okay, this next one puts a spin on an old legend. From the state of Massachusetts, please welcome John to the program.
7: This is uh, Jean-Patrice calling from Massachusetts, just listened to um, not black-eyed children but black-eyed adults, and I thought I'd have to call in about an experience I had on the subway in Boston in 2013, to be exact, it's the red line leaving downtown Boston heading towards Dorchester. What I witnessed were two men maybe in their 50s or 60s. They looked pretty unhealthy, rather short, maybe under 5 foot 5, not to be rude but kind of overweight. The best way I describe it is the Harry Potter movies Peter Pettigrew, which was Ron Weasley's rat that revealed itself to be a human. It, these two uh people uh, Twins, I'm assuming, looked like this Peter Pettigrew character. And it's a loaded train, like a busy subway. And these two twins, dressed similar dark clothing, they're sitting on the train and they're kind of looking at this mom and baby. And the baby's in a stroller. And one of them is kind of making faces and little hand movements at the baby like like he was playing with the, the kid and it was at this point that I saw his eyes and his eyes were completely black like other callers have described like you know completely black no white and I noticed after watching for a while his brother or twin or what I assumed were, were brothers had the same eyes and uh, I watched them for a while and it didn't seem like anyone else had noticed them or how unusual they were and the mother of the child didn't seem bothered by them but when the train came to a stop one of them got off and i'm saying they looked identical like like identical twins and one of them got off without acknowledging his twin without saying anything to him without saying goodbye waving or anything one of them got off the train and the other stayed and eventually I kind of just lost sight of him or he got off the train. I can't really recall where or when. But before this encounter, I I had no idea anything about black-eyed children or, or I had never heard of it. And when I got home, I immediately was on the internet and I, I remember I typed in black-eyed being. Because I didn't know what else to type in. I had no contact. And that's when I heard about all these black-eyed children sightings. And I, I kind of was not expecting that there would be this whole phenomenon. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty much my story. I'm, I'm glad to have heard someone else call in with a black-eyed adult experience.
0: Thank you, John. Now, this isn't the first time we've explored the possibility of a black-eyed adult. Back on Season 14, Episode 7 we shared an entry from Jay in New Jersey that also seems to detail these full-grown, dark-eyed demons. And it's the call I believe John is actually referring to in his entry. Now, if this kind of thing ruffles your feathers, Delaney dug up a collection of similar encounters, the link to which can be found in tonight's show notes. And if you like this sort of thing, I highly recommend you take a quick look. Now, if there actually are black-eyed children out there, I suppose it's only natural that we, too, have the adult variety as well. But what are they? And, more importantly, exactly what is it that they want? Thanks again, John, for the call. 76 years ago this week, an event occurred that would shake the military the press, and civilians alike. An event that may have altered our history, timeline, and future. But that's not what the military will have you believe. 76 years ago this week, something crashed into the desert outside of Roswell, New Mexico. And for those of you living under a rock, this is how all those events went down, courtesy of UFO Hunters on the History Channel.
8: Early July, 1947, Roswell, New Mexico is a quiet city of just 26,000 people. The majority of the population are ranchers or military based at the nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Little do any of them know, this sleepy town is about to receive a wake-up call. On July 6th, local rancher Mac Brazel reports to the local sheriff that he has found strange debris on the ranch where he works. Major Jesse Marcel from Roswell Army Airfield is sent out to investigate. He takes as much of the debris as he can fit in his truck back to the base. On July 8th, the Army issues a statement that they are in possession of a flying saucer. But after the debris is flown to Dallas, Texas that afternoon for further analysis, the Army states the debris is nothing but a misidentified weather balloon. The story quickly fades from memory. But in 1978, Stanton Friedman, a retired nuclear physicist, interviews Jesse Marcel, who has a somewhat different take on the story. Marcel reveals to Friedman that what was said that afternoon in Dallas on July 8, 1947, was actually a cover story. What he handled was definitely not a weather balloon. Of course, it was much more complicated than all that,
0: but that pretty much catches you up now with that history lesson behind us allow me to introduce carrie from the state of new mexico
9: hello derek this is carrie from albuquerque new mexico i'm calling to share about something that happened to me about 35 years ago i was about eight years old and my family and i lived in roswell new Mexico which we all know has its own stories. But what happened to me happened late at night. I was supposed to already be in bed. Uh, It was probably around midnight. It was a school night, so my mom had already tucked me into bed. And I wanted to get up and play a prank on my mom. She is an artist, so she would stay up late at night and work in her studio painting when the house was quiet and every once in a while I would like go and hide in the bathtub and, you know, pull the shower curtain back and uh, scream out and scare my mom and laugh and get sent to bed. So this was one of those nights, but what I decided to do was hide in this very large dining room that we had. There was a very big window that looked out into our backyard there was of course the dining table and a very old grandfather clock so what i had done is i had squeezed myself in between the grandfather clock and a hutch a cabinet that held dishes and such and I was waiting for my mom to come down the hallway. I could hear her in the bathroom doing her nightly routine. I was waiting, and it felt like forever for eight-year-old me. And uh, I looked out towards the window that would look out directly into our backyard, and I saw a very strange glowing light. It was multiple colors and it was about at my eye level and i could see it there and it was moving so uh not being afraid at all i I didn't know what was going to be there i moved back the curtain and what i saw was a small being it was about my height if not a little bit taller and I got very scared. I drew the curtains closed and I stood there and I could still see it glowing. The curtains were a very light, sheer lace. And I got my courage and I remember pulling the curtain back and it was like a being that was, if you will, almost the consistency of a jellyfish. I mean, it was see-through. I could see the different uh, organs and vascular system of this being. And it was as interested in me as I was in it. It did not feel menacing, not to me as a child. Uh, I didn't know exactly what it was, so I wasn't completely terrified. I was really just kind of shocked at what I was seeing. I remember like kind of moving my head around to look at it. As I moved my head, it would mimic my movements and it lifted its hand up towards the window. This actually gives me full body chills and goosebumps to even talk about it now. 35 years later. And uh, I, I remember when it lifted its fingers up, it did not have five fingers. It only had a couple of fingers on its hand. And for some reason, the movement of this being scared me. It really, really scared me. It kind of made it real. And I remember just running and screaming and running down the hallway, which of course scared my mom. And she asked what was wrong. I did not have it in me to explain to her what I saw. And she quickly told me to hurry to bed. And that is what I did. I might have mentioned this maybe somewhere in my childhood to my parents and I was kind of dismissed. Thank you so much. Love the show. And uh, I appreciate everything you do. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you, Carrie. This one's going to be fun. Ladies and gentlemen, it's deep dive time. Now, anyone that knows anything about Roswell knows that there were purported alien bodies found in the wreckage. There are even further claims that the bodies were recovered by the U.S. military, and that one even survived. But let's back up to Carrie's call. This experience took place somewhere around 1987, some 40 years after the initial crash. So, on the surface, it may seem that a survivor of the crash may have been hanging around. But what are the chances that it was the same being that Carrie witnessed through her window? Why would it be hanging around for 40 years? And more importantly, how? This would have us believe that it managed to stay undetected for some 40 years, only for a little girl to suddenly stumble upon it. Seems a little far-fetched for me. So to start my deep dive, I was in search of two pieces of vital information. Who was the first person to report seeing Beans? And how were they described? I think armed with that information, we can get a better idea of what Carrie may have seen. And after some digging, I found the book Crash at Corona by Don Berliner and Stan T. Friedman. And in the book, it details the experience of Gerald Anderson and his family. New to the area, Gerald, along with his father, brother, uncle, and cousin, drove to a remote area of New Mexico they called Horse Springs to collect gemstones. As they made their way down a dry wash, Legend says they became the first human beings to discover something otherworldly. I was just about to read a passage from the aforementioned book when I stumbled upon an actual interview of Gerald Anderson, made by Stan Friedman, back in July of 1991. Here is the rest of Gerald's experience, straight from the witness's mouth.
10: And as we came around to uh, abandon the arroyo that had the uh pignon and cedar trees growing on, we were able to see farther ahead down the arroyo and on the next ridgeline there was a large silver disc-shaped object uh, was embedded in the side of the ridgeline and uh, there was debris and and, and wreckage and stuff uh, straight about the area but mainly this thing was intact. I would estimate its size from an adult perspective to be something like 35 feet in diameter. I've heard other uh, people who were there say they thought it was like 50 feet, but as an adult, I would say about 35 feet in diameter, quite large. When we got up to it, there were uh, four bodies there, were not human. Uh, there was two of them who were obviously dead. One of them was obviously very badly injured, and one of them apparently uh, suffered no effects, or it didn't appear to be injured and was, um, was ambulatory, it was mobile. I was just sitting there next to the one that uh, was still alive appeared to be... Back. Were they right next to the vehicle? Or right next to it, right under the edge of it. And uh, this craft had apparently come in from the east, bounced off one ridge line, went plowing through this arroyo area and then crashed into the, the ridge line and embedded itself and they were sitting back under the edge. It was kind of tilted up like this and they were sitting back under the edge here. And uh, I'm assuming that this one creature that was all right had laid this material on the ground, but it looked like unrolled tinfoil the that these other three creatures were laying on it, like it was trying to, like, like you do a person in shock and put it on a blanket kind of a thing. And apparently uh, it had some boxes there around it uh, and had apparently been trying to give first aid or help these other creatures uh, when we first got there and as we approached um, the creature drew back like this like it was in fear of us like we were going to hurt it and it wasn't very long you know trying to communicate with them, the adults were it seemed to calm down and just sat there and kind of looked back and forth watching them uh, apparently trying to figure out what was going on. Like, what, what did it look like a little bit more? These creatures, all of them were oh about four foot tall, four or four and a half feet tall. They had very large heads that were shaped larger on the top and they kind of tapered down. Not to a real sharp point, but just tapered down to where they were thin. And they had very large, very large oval shaped or almond-shaped, I guess you could say, black eyes. They had. They were so shiny. They had almost a bluish tint to them when the light reflected off them. Their skin coloration. Um, I think the best way I could describe that is kind of a bluish tinted milky white. Uh, it was. Uh, it, it looked like someone in shock. And the ones that were laying on the ground were really, really looked more that way. More blue. Uh, like it was how about ears, nose, mouth? No, there was there was no visible ears on the, the creatures except like if you was just to cover your ear like this, to where there was just a rise there and then a hole, without uh, you know your earlobe and, mm-hmm. and the rest of the ear there. How About nose? Um, it was uh, the nose was very very small, almost imperceptible, and uh, just like two holes straight in, and the lips were just a straight line. Like a cut, and you couldn't see any visible lips like we have, it was just a slit. And what they hair never you A sound, pardon? What hair color? There was no hair, they were okay. completely bald, and no sound. I never heard a sound, one not out of any of the creatures, it, including one of was. Did you see fingers? Uh, yeah, they had uh, they had fingers like this, they didn't have a little finger, they just had the thumb and three extra digits, except the center digit was longer and the other two were about the same size. They were very long and slender, looked very delicate. And I've made the statement before, and I'll make it again, I think it would have made excellent violinists because of the, 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 the structure of their hands.
0: So what Gerald described seemed to be a similar size to what Kerry described. And dare I say the same shape as well. Both witnesses described some sort of strange hand structure. And that bluish, milky-white color, could that have been the same jellyfish look that Carrie claimed to have seen? The rational side of my brain tells me it's impossible that these are somehow the same creature, but the comparisons are eerily similar. Similar enough to give me pause. But if this is not the same specimen, could it be of the same species, or perhaps race? Is it possible that these beings have somehow secretly inhabited parts of the desert southwest for years? Or is it possible that they came back looking for their fallen comrades? To add to this little mystery, recently, as in the past 10 years, evidence has appeared in the form of a photograph. A photo that was important enough. The KRQE News 13 did this report on it
9: it's one of the first things you hear when you mention Roswell aliens and people come from all over the country to see them I
8: am a firm believer in aliens
9: well this week a never-before-seen picture was released that some people believe is more proof that a UFO did crash here back in 1947
4: according to Kodak yes it is real it hasn't been doctored it hadn't been touched it is from that time period from the uh, photographers that were in this area in 1947.
9: The photo was revealed at a conference in Mexico City on Tuesday. Someone claimed they found it in a box in an attic in Sedona, Arizona. (laughs) Along with pictures of Clark Gable, Bing Crosby, and Dwight Eisenhower. While a lot of people are calling it just another hoax, it's definitely fueling the debate again over what's known as the Roswell UFO incident.
0: Now I encourage all of you to hit up the show notes and take a look at all of this information. But if you're not going to, I'll just describe it. If I'm honest, it kind of looks like a piece of old jerky. It's not hard to make out the creature's head. It's tilted to the side, and its mouth is agape. The ribs are very prominent, and you can see a couple little arms and at least one of the two legs. The entire being is yellowish-brown in color. Sort of like a glossy pair of honey brown work boots. But trust me when I say, just go take a look for yourself. Now my guess here is that it's the mummified remains of a child. But the photo is blurry and I'm not a doctor or a scientist or whoever identifies that sort of thing. But that's what it looks like to me. it's certainly an interesting find, whatever it is. And believe it or not, that's not all. As you can imagine, I watch and read a lot of paranormal-themed material. I'm always looking for new information to share here on the program. And in doing so, I stumbled upon a shocking claim made just over a week ago by two investigators in the field, Don Schmidt and Ben Hansen. According to their claims, and Gerald Anderson's, The craft actually contacted the Earth, then bounced to the resting place where it was found. And according to Schmidt and Hansen, they've actually located that impact spot. Now, I've linked to their full interview in the show notes, but sadly we don't have time to dig that deep this evening. But we do appreciate the entry, Carrie. For now, that's going to do it for this evening. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Copyright, Red Crow Media. Additional support was provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Delaney Bowers. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And if you like what you hear, maybe jump on social media and give us a follow. We post updates, follow-ups, additional information, that sort of thing, over there. While you're at it, please give us a like and follow, maybe even a comment over YouTube. Don't forget, you can listen to the show on Sundown, 96.6, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, or on the UnX Network at 11 p.m. Eastern on Saturdays. And finally, the terrifying score you heard used this evening was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, Code at AG Music, and Carl Casey at White Bad Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Keep your eyes open out there. Keep it spooky, and I'll catch you here next week. Have a good night. Well, we began the evening with a mysterious fire, and we're going to end it with one as well. Tonight's secret entry comes to us from Stephen in the state of Arizona.
3: Hi, Derek. This is uh, Stephen calling, calling you from small town of Williams, Arizona. The incident or incidents took place in a church building, which has been recently renovated and turned into my college campus in Pasadena, California. Uh, the original building was home to First Congregational Church, and it's right pretty much in the middle of downtown Pasadena. It's a really old building. I think it was built in the late 1920s, somewhere around there. It's an old Gothic-style cathedral. It's a really, really neat building. But when we moved in to the area uh, as, as a college, we switched campuses in the middle of my sophomore year of college, and we used this building for classrooms and uh, we're a Christian school, so we had chapel in there. Uh, all that good stuff. But a lot of students started talking about hearing things or seeing things, and it was just like it really put everybody kind of on edge. And, and I've always been fascinated with the building, so I wanted to check it out a little bit more. Uh, and so this this past spring, me and a good buddy of mine, uh, we decided to kind of explore it as much as we possibly could. It's got a basement and then the ground level, and then there's a second floor and a third floor. And, and oh, there's been reportings of, of things happening on all of the floors. But for me, I think just the weirdest thing happened, I guess on the third floor, uh, we had been exploring up there one night, and we got the idea, where we were like, you know, what if we just kind of try to find history of this building, see if anyone else has reported anything, uh, like, see if the First Congregational Church that used to be there has said anything. So I actually found a document online. The, so the city of Pasadena made the building, uh, a historic site, in 2018, I believe, it was a real lanky PDF. It was like 150 some pages, but it really had a really detailed history of the building. And we discovered that the building had actually burned down partially because of a lightning strike. And there were potentially a lot of casualties in that fire. And so you know, we were thinking maybe this is an explanation. Maybe there's like, you know, souls that are like trapped here or something. But uh, anyway, that night I remember going to bed and I had this dream the, the, the dream kind of opened up there was this woman and she was kind of was almost beckoning to me she said you know hey come I have things to show you uh, I was really weirded out by that and so I kind of forced myself to wake up and uh, about 30 minutes later I fell back asleep and fell back asleep right into the same dream and so I decided to follow this figure in the dream to see where it was and, and she led me in onto the third floor of the building and she was just pointing at different areas And when I had looked at the document again the next morning, those were the areas that had been burned. So I was really, really confused, a little bit spooked out. But but also, like, there was also a feeling of, like, she wasn't intending to harm me. She seemed very kind. So I really don't know what was going on with that. I have other stories as well. And I know a lot of my former classmates and colleagues, they have a lot of stories in the building, which I may call again at some point, to share. But that's all I have for today. So uh, thank you and keep up the good work on the show. Bye.
0: Well wouldn't you know that churches are on my short list of probably haunted locations? And we all know a fire seems to have the potential to attract or bring out supernatural activity. So I guess I'm saying these encounters really don't come as much of a surprise. But it's still fascinating. And a big thanks to you, Stephen, for taking the time to share. Pasadena is certainly an odd place, full of beauty and history. And a fun place to hang out for the evening. Well, folks, it's that time again. Time to venture beyond. Now, I already told you earlier this evening how you can access this bonus content. But in case you forgot, patreon.com, then search for Monsters Among Us podcast. Join your level and get rolling. You can even try it out for an entire week for free if you would like. And once you do, you'll discover you've been missing out on calls Like Greg's in Maine.
8: Hey,
7: Derek. My name's Greg. I live in Maine. What I'm calling about actually just happened tonight. So I work in a restaurant as a kitchen manager. So I got out of work. You know, we're doing our closing up stuff. And my wife works with me. She's a bartender. And we have three customers that were former employees.